Welcome to Movie Maniacs, discussing the greatest movies of all time and all the new films in theaters and streaming that you need to know about. Like us, rate us, share us. Good evening, everybody. My name is Chuck Curry, alongside my co-host, Kenny B. This is Movie Maniacs, our weekly uh, podcast radio show heard on WOWOWO at Fort Wayne, Indiana, every Saturday night at midnight. This is a show where we talk about anything and everything that pertains to the world of movies, television, and anything related, I guess, to pop culture. Ken, this week's show, uh, we always do a second-half top ten list. We're going to talk about... Uh, some of our favorite TV characters of all time, our top 10 that we seem to dig, enjoy, remember, so on and so forth. A lot of stuff to talk about. We're heating into the Memorial Day weekend, another big film release, which is the live action version of Disney's The Little Mermaid, which is doing some good tracking around $120 million tracking number for a four day opening weekend. That's good. That comes on the heels, Ken, of the opening of Fast uh, X, which is Fast and the Furious 10, which opened last weekend to around $67 million here domestically, $330 million worldwide. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, it appears that this movie is performing very well overseas, uh, somewhat uh, more tepid than Universe would like domestically, but it's been around a long time. Fast and the Furious franchise overall, now Ken has made $7 billion dollars uh, as a whole entity, which uh, is a lot of money to be made in a franchise that has gone on uh, around 20 years, two decades. Uh, hard, hard to believe. That is a very long run. Uh, I'll pass the torch or the baton, as we say, over to you. How are you doing and uh, what's on your mind? I, I'm doing pretty well. And it's it's interesting listening to those numbers for Fast and Furious. We realize how much, as I mentioned last week, uh, uh, in connection with 2019, when for the first time, we were not the largest box office market in the world, that the United States box office is a smaller percentage of the global box office than it used to be, and we might think. And of course, that probably drives some of the offerings. I'm looking forward to A Little Mermaid, the live action. I love the, as you know, I love the uh, the animated version. I, I had sent you, uh, or I didn't send you, but I, I posted on Facebook, tagged you in. Uh, somebody had asked... Uh, artificial intelligence to come up with casting for a remake of wizard of oz and although i'm I not saw a, that. i it, saw that it's actually pretty cool yeah i'm not a bit i'm not a fan of remaking wizard of oz but very interesting ai came up with a better uh, uh casting than some uh, directors or producers might come up with so i wonder if you know in the future we might not be using artificial intelligence to determine who should be in some of these roles but it was a uh, extremely interesting but I'm, I'm great didn't really watch anything new in the world of uh, movies this week and uh, right now my door has opened on its own and i see something orange sticking its head in so i think the cat's, <laughs> the cat's coming to join us well very good welcome aboard I, I just want to say you bring up an interesting point I, I just want to off the top of my head expand on you know uh in baseball you have analytics right uh major league baseball and owners uh, spend millions and millions of dollars figuring out stats and when somebody's going to get a hit and how important on-base percentage is. Well, in the movie industry, there's a thing called the Q rating, which, which uh, is, a, is a system that uh, they do an analysis on, on the likability and the, the, the overall popularity of a certain actor or actress that is used that goes into the mix. But I, I, I do think when 
some some uh, somebody is cast. Obviously, the popularity and can this can this person, whether it's an actress or actor, uh, draw people into theaters or get eyeballs on on streaming? That that obviously goes into uh, the mix. And it's always interesting when they take a flyer on an unknown. I mean, did Little Mermaid? Uh, uh, I guess this young actress, Holly Holly Berry. Uh, is a relative unknown with it with a great voice. I mean, obviously, I wish her the best of luck. It's a good coup in her career to get that role. Uh, I know James Gunn for his uh, Superman legacy, which we touched a little bit on last week. He's currently uh, brainstorming the casting process. They're looking at an actress for Lois Lane. Uh, as I said, actor Nicholas Holt is, is, is reportedly their number one choice to play Lex Luthor, which I just want to touch, I have an opinion on that in one second, but it looks like they're going to cast a relatively unknown as Clark Kent Superman, and I do think that is the way to go uh, for sure. I think, I think an unknown with a highly likable uh, persona who has a good Clark Kent Superman look is the way to go, but I just wanted to point out, when I heard the casting possibility of Nicholas Holt as Lex Luthor, and James Gunn's Superman Legacy over at DC Warner Brothers, I started to think about it. And the one name that really did pop in, and I'm not, I'm a human being, Ken, I'm not artificial intelligence. So the one name that really did pop in my head as a good Lex Luthor, how about Bradley Cooper? I, I think he'd be, I think he'd be really good. He's, he's, he's got a, he's got the charisma. He's got a look. He's highly intelligent. He can deliver lines. Uh, he's a he's a big name. Uh, what do you think of that? Oh, I I, I think that's actually a very good pick, and uh, I, I I also love when we come up with casting of somebody who's not well known. I, I think I rewatched the man named Otto this week, and the casting of the uh, of the girl in that uh, in that movie, uh, the, the the Hispanic lady who is a you know she's a, a fairly uh, established actress in Mexico, but not. Not a huge name, and she was just you know perfect, perfect casting for that. And you probably couldn't do the same thing had you had you cast Selma Hayek in that role. It just wouldn't have been the same. I, I agree with you. And it's always fun to see f- fresh talent that you really haven't seen before to do their thing uh, in front of the camera. I, I of course had the same feeling when I saw uh, Darren Ar- Darren Aronofsky's The Whale with Brenda Fraser, the woman who played. Uh, his guardian, you know, the the woman who took care of him, his his uh, his 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 living nurse. I, I never saw her before. That she was, I thought she knocked it out of the park. She was nominated for for an Oscar, well deserved, and uh, that really was also good to see. Some other st- stuff of interest. Just go over box office uh, totals. Uh, as I said, Guardians did uh, sixty seven here domestically. Uh, I mean, Fast Fast X sixty seven. Million domestically, Guardians uh, of the Galaxy Volume Three, thirty-one million, and Weekend Number Three, two hundred sixty-six million, forty-eight percent drop off week to week. This movie's holding good, meaning that word of mouth is uh, good. So the the deal is with the superhero movies uh, here, Ken. It's not the fact that uh, that the genre is completely imploding it's that people want good superhero movies and i think this is a good one i think ant-man and, and the wasp quantum mania and a few others before it started to wane in terms of quality and that will hurt uh possibly kill any genre so guardians got that back on track we got the flash coming out mid-june which warner brothers just uh cut the last and final trailer uh that 
emphasis uh, emphasizes Bruce Wayne Batman on the back end of the trailer, and it, and it really delves into the emotional and tone aspect of the overall story, specifically Barry Allen uh, and The Flash, played by Ezra Miller. I, I think Warner Brothers DC has done a tremendous job marketing a film that they already know is really good. They tested through the roof at CinemaCon. In, in April, and as I stated, uh, I think it'll be the summer's biggest film. It's tracking between 110 and $140 million opening weekend. I think, it, I'll say on the show right now, it's gonna blow past those numbers. This movie will get people into multiplexes in absolute droves. Uh, that's my opinion. Uh, also, two things. Warner Brothers yesterday released a trailer uh, online to its Barbie movie. Uh, directed by uh, Greta uh, Gershwin, who did Little Women. She's a well-respected director. It stars Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling. I watched his trailer, and I gotta tell you, Ken, my first reaction was, uh, who, who who is this made for? Uh, hey, I know there's a metaphor to it. I know it has a message. I don't know if I got it out of the trailer, but when I watched two huge names in the industry, like Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, when I watched that trailer, my first reaction was, this feels like Hudson Hawk uh, of this decade. It just feels like it has it has the potential to be a massive bomb written all over it. I know Mattel probably helped finance a lot of the $100 million budget. Uh, it seems absurd uh, to see these actors performing this way. Having said that, I guess I'm not the target audience. I must be missing something, but this is either gonna hit or it's going to be a big miss. I don't think there's much in between. You you get a chance to watch the trailer? I, I, I did watch the trailer, and I've, I've actually studied a little bit of the uh, the history of this movie. Um, uh-huh. it's, it's a 10-year project uh, that, okay. that's finally come together. Um, at one point in time, the project was owned by Amy Schumer. Now, Amy Schumer, right. Amy Schumer right. as Barbie would not have worked, I have to tell you. Yeah. Although it would have done away with the... She would have uh, gave it a good try, though. It would have been a different movie. Would have been different. And, and the, yeah. the movie the movie is sort of like you got all excited when there were going to be different Spider-Mans in the uh, Spider-Man universe, in the one yeah. movie or different. Well, there, there's a bunch of different Barbies in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, and including the first ever lawyer Barbie, because there's never been an official lawyer Barbie in the mm-hmm. Barbie universe. There's a transgender Barbie in this movie. Uh, there's a, you know, a Dr. Barbie, a uh, president Barbie for President Barbie. Uh, yeah, it, it's you have to think it's geared for young girls, and I don't know if they're, you know, the thing is that it's, I'm not sure that young girls, other than squealing that it's Barbie, are really going to get it. I was not thrilled with the Gosling's uh, look as Ken. Uh, not really thrilled with Ken, period, but. Okay, this just popped I, in my head. Yep. This just popped in my head. Do you remember? Uh, I think it was, uh, I think, I, I don't remember when it was released. I think it was around 1990, Barry Levison, a well-respected director, uh, one of the best in the industry, who did Rain Man, he came out with the movie, it was his pet project, Toys, with Robin Williams, right? Yes. This feels like Toys a little, that yeah. trailer. It feels like, uh, it feels absurd. Like, why is this talent involved in this project? I don't know. I, I'm probably missing something, but, uh, but, two, but, but we'll see. Yeah, two little, uh, two other little tidbits just to finish Barbie off there. Barbie, sure. Barbie originally was going to be the girlfriend of Woody 
in Toy Story. Instead, he ended up with Bo Peep because they couldn't get the rights from Mattel for the first Toy Story. Barbie does appear in second and third Toy Story. And Gosling was being recruited to play Ken. He wasn't really sure he wanted to do it. The story goes, he saw... He saw his his daughter's Ken doll face down in the mud with a lemon next to it, and he said, "You know what?" And he wrote, he texted the uh, producer and said, "I'll play Ken because his story needs to be told, whether that's true or not. Hey, it's a great story." Hey, I'm sure the twenty million dollar check cleared too. That ain't a bad deal. Uh, I know if I touch about I touched on this last week's program, but Martin Scorsese's newest film, his first western. Killers, Killer of the Flower Moon uh, premiered at Cannes. Got a lot of great, uh, a lot of great advanced uh, re- reviews. It's three hours and twenty-five minutes. Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, uh, the, the actress, the the uh, in, uh, American Indian actress who plays a female lead, got a lot of good notices. Uh, this one hits theaters in September, and then probably forty-five days later, will be on Apple. TV. It's a Martin Scorsese movie. Obviously, there's going to be high interest here. One of the greatest, if not the greatest filmmaker uh, of our generation. I mean, to me, it's Spielberg, uh, and then it's Scorsese, and then it's James Cameron. But boy, Martin Scorsese at the age of 80, still uh, a tremendous filmmaker, a true gift to uh, filmmaking humanity. So Killer of the Flower Moon comes out uh, this September, Ken. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of westerns. Although these days, of course, we always have to reimagine the western and give it a uh, a, a social message. But uh, I, I do I miss the days when we had John Wayne and others and in westerns, and you could just go for a uh, you know just just the, your average gunfight on a Saturday afternoon. Well, I mean, Kevin Costner currently. I mean, it, I I don't know if he started the film or. It, He's going into production on Horizon, which is uh, an epic western that he's that he's wanted to do. He obviously got some clout after uh, the success of Yellowstone, but boy, has that all blown up into a uh, a soap opera? But you know, Unforgiven revived the the western, and then Costner did uh, that film with uh, uh, Robert Duvall, which is a good movie. I, I don't recall the title right off the top of my head, but. Uh, you know, Western genre is always going to be around, around the edges. People will always uh, bring it back. But uh, this is a, uh, a really interesting-looking trailer also for Killer of the Flower Moon. I don't know if mainstream is going to – you're probably going to need to read what the movie's about. I don't think the trailer fleshes everything out, but it's just the first of, I'm sure, many trailers to come. Uh, some other uh, news of interest, Mission Impossible 7, which is part one – which opens July 12th, the longest Mission Impossible in terms of uh, length, running time, uh, two hours, 36 minutes, a minute and 56 minutes, uh, two hours and 36 minutes. You have, an, uh, you have an opinion on running times for movies. It appears that a lot of movies now, especially these bigger films, feel very comfortable running at a two hour and 30 minute plus running time. Um, opinion on that for me i think the sweet spot is an hour 45 to to two hours because if you get there at the scheduled start time and you sit through a half hour of stuff on the screen that has nothing to do with the movie by the time the movie starts if you also then have to sit through a two and a half hour movie 
I've, I've got to make. I've got to leave my seat for a little while if it's that long. I, I always, I always, I always felt an hour, like an hour and fifty minutes, hour and fifty-five minutes, is the sweet spot. If you could tell a really tight, good story in that running time, I, I think that that is the sweet spot. I think you have to have something extraordinary when you start to get to two hours and a half because you, you, you I think people are not conditioned to sit as long I mean we've had three hour movies with, with Titanic but uh, and obviously Avatar is blown past three hours I don't know if I consider Avatar a, a movie as much as I consider it uh, uh, some sort of visual attraction but uh, yeah I mean that uh, fairly long running yeah. time Any, anything else on your mind before we bounce into some of this week in TV or movie history and then again the second half of the show folks uh, our top 10 countdown is going to be our top 10 favorite uh, TV characters of all time that we that we dig. That's going to be in the second half of the uh, program. So anything else on your mind, Ken? I, I got nothing on my mind other than it'll be, it will be interesting the next few weeks as we start the summer season with movies. Memorial Day, the summer kickoff. Kids now out of uh, school as far as college and most kids in high school getting done with school. So that's the traditional time when they flock to the movies. It will be interesting to see how the uh, the movies do this summer. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I think uh, the next 30 to 45 days theatrically is going to be a huge, huge uh, bar- barometer for, for where this summer and then really getting back to the movies is going to go. I mean, we know people are going back to the big popcorn films. Uh, let's see what kind of legs these movies have when one after the other starts to uh, come out. Uh, very quickly. Uh, let's play this week in, in movie history. First one, uh, May 27th, 1973. Uh, Live and Let Die uh, hits theaters. First forte is 007 by Roger Moore. Ken, this was the first James Bond movie I ever saw in a movie theater when I was a little kid. My parents took me, and I have a photographic memory where I saw movies. Parents took me to see Live and Let Die at the King's Plaza duplex it was one theater on one side, one on the other, uh, in Brooklyn, New York. I'll always remember this film because I remember that ending when Roger Moore's Bond gets thrown into a pool with his hands tied. He's got that bl- uh, watch that, that cuts rope. Uh, Yapa Koto played the villain. There's a shark in the water tank. I don't know, for some reason that image always stayed in my head, but it was my first forte of actually seeing James Bond 007 on a big screen. Uh, Jane Seymour was a Bond girl, played solitaire. Uh, I- I'm partial to Roger Moore because he's the first Bond Ken that I grew up with watching him in a movie theater. So uh, fond memories of Live and Let Die. And, and one of the top 10 uh, Bond themes of all time. And I, yes. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of listening to the Bond theme music because the, you know there was probably 25 uh, gold records that have come out of the Bond anthology. Uh, I would agree. Uh, some other, uh, this week in uh, film history, 1984, uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was released in theaters that great year of 1984. I think I saw it five times in the theater. Still, my favorite Indiana Jones movie, Doom is a little bit darker, but the action is nonstop. It's a roller coaster, and the action is absolutely terrific. I love Short Round, love his pairing. Uh, and and it's, it has all, one of my all-time f- favorite lines in the movie, Ken, where after the, the, the uh, Indiana Jones and Short Round escape, 
there's all these slave children in the cave and Willie played by Kate Cashore says, let's get to Indy. Let's get out of here. And he turns around, looks directly at the camera and he says, yeah, all of us. That's awesome. Awesome line. I love that movie. In uh, 89, uh, this week in, in movie history, Indiana Jones and the last crusade opened nationwide. Big fan favorite, Sean Connery, uh, played his father some really good stuff a very emotional piece of filmmaking this indiana jones was by uh steven spielberg and you got a chance to find out finally what was indiana jones real first name you know the answer to that ken illinois it was henry henry uh, henry, henry was the father was senior junior was indiana uh and then and then uh, the late River Phoenix played young Indiana Jones in the prologue uh, of, of this film. And that was some really good uh, stuff in that movie. I'm a big fan of uh, both Temple of Doom and Indiana Jones in the last and, uh, and both, both, of, both of those smartly opening on Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, and, and uh, a, good, a good spot for uh, movies. And that really started the trend of... That's sort of the beginning of the summer season, Memorial Day weekend. Another one that I, I believe opened on Memorial Day weekend in 91 was Ron Howard's Backdraft with uh, Kurt Russell and uh, William Baldwin, William Baldwin, who's technically the lead in that film, Rebecca De Mornay, uh, uh Donald Sutherland. I like that movie a lot. Uh, the scene at the end where Kurt Russell's hanging off the pipe uh, it's, it's an amazing death scene and it's very powerful. And I got to tell you, William Baldwin actually was really good in that movie. He later went on to do Fair Game with Sidney uh, Crawford and his career started started to really fizzle out. But I thought he was good in that uh, in, in, in that in that film. I, I, overall, I, I like Backdraft. I thought it was a good, solid theatrical uh, experience. You have memory on that one? Uh, very, very little. That's around the time, of course, that I was leaving the country for a while so uh, uh didn't watch a lot of movies okay uh one birthday of interest i'm a fan uh may 24th 1965 john c Riley this week turns 58 years of age uh i'd say my favorite john c Riley movie uh beside boogie nights which is probably one of the first times i've ever seen him on screen a great movie uh i love perfect storm which is my favorite Clooney movie directed by wolfgang peterson I love the James Horner score. It has emotion. Uh, it has a very powerful ending. John C. Riley, big part of that movie. Obviously, he worked with uh, Will Farrell in comedies uh, like Step Brothers and Talladega Nights. Uh, he did good voice work and uh, like movie Sing. I, I think John C. Riley is a great talent and a really interesting guest when he appears on talk shows. Opinion on him? I'm very versatile, and that's you know, if you are a versatile actor in Hollywood. You can get a lot of work. Uh, you can, and and also the one thing about character actors, no knock on John C. Riley uh, in terms of physical appearance, he's a fine-looking man. But you don't have to have movie star leading man looks to have a great career. And uh, he's an example. He also was in a movie, Stan and Ollie, where he played uh, Laurel uh, of Laurel and Hardy fame, and it was a sort of an indie movie. But I thought he did fantastic work. In that film, 
And uh, I enjoyed watching it when we booked it at our independent Pocono Cinema in East Strasburg, Pennsylvania. One other This Week in Movie History before we get on to our main topic, which will be our top 10 favorite TV characters. May 27, 1980, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining opens nationwide, a movie that really has defined horror. I, I think one of the greatest uh, pieces of filmmaking of all time. And when I saw this finally on a big screen about six years ago, doing a revival, I sort of realized that, my Lord, what a movie. This is just hypnotic, uh, visually amazing. Uh, it sucks you in, the atmosphere, the sets. And, and they built all these sets uh, for the Overlook Hotel. The exteriors were a real... Uh, a real ho- hotel in Colorado, I believe, but everything inside was was built on sound stages. And that tricycle sequence, when you see the camera panning him on a dolly uh, on tracks, is one of the best shots still, I think, in the history of film. Nicholson, Duval, Scatman Crothers, great atmosphere. I love me some Shining. Uh, release this day uh, or this week, May 27, 19. 80, Ken. Thoughts on The Shining? A C- couple things. First, I was, uh, you know, just my mind, I was thinking, where was Robert Duvall in that movie? Of course, it was Shelley and not not Robert. See how quick my mind is? No, I, I don't even know half of what I'm saying. You, you, yeah, no, you said, you, 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 you said Duvall. I added the Robert, and it's like, where was Robert? Thank you, Thank it, you for it, that was, it, was, it was Shelley. And yeah, that yes. is a movie that, even though it's, you know, there's different kinds of horror genre, and that one's more of the 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 deranged mind kind of horror but uh the the movie is much different if you watch it on a bigger screen just because of as you say of the visuals the the exterior and the interior so a great movie uh shows you don't need to have a lot of blood and guts to make a great movie wonderful ad lib when he uh, cuts through the door and says here's johnny yeah so a, a tribute to Johnny Carson, even so, a great, yes. great movie. Now, do you remember in '97 they did a miniseries which fleshed out the Jack Torrance character, The Shining, which Stephen King actually really liked. He was not a he. He has a lot of problems with the theatrical version because he thinks Stanley Kubrick took way too many liberties with his novel, which probably is accurate. But the miniseries was interesting because Stephen Weber, I actually thought, was really good. And I mean, he did a really good job, not easy stepping into the shoes of a role played by the iconic Jack Nicholson, but Stephen Weber did a really good job. Rebecca Mornay played uh, the Shelley Duvall role. I thought she did a good job. I think for people who have never seen the Shining miniseries, it's well worth seeing. Uh, I I think it's a good piece of of television that I certainly would, uh, would, would recommend. So anything else? to say before we get into our top 10 list of our favorite movie characters of all time, which I had a lot of fun uh, writing, by the way, or coming uh, up with. Yeah, all I can say is that this week's top 10 was exactly the opposite problem of last week's top 10, where it's how do I come up with 10 movies in the 2000 teens that are worth mentioning? The Just the actors and actresses on this list, I was at a minor league baseball game on Wednesday night, and trying to come up with my list, talking about it during the game, and it'd be like you'd you'd be watching something. You go, oh, well, how about this? How about that? The people that we had to leave off of our list. Yeah, uh, like I, I mean, it was it was yeah. it was it's amazing, and it just shows how much of uh, our lives television has been. 
Yeah, and I mean, look, the thing about television is that these these characters last many years in our life. So, you know, the attachment and the memories are a very solid foundation of, uh, of, of, of who we are in our life and where we were at the time in our life when we, we got involved and we watched these programs. I, I'm going to start off with my 10 through 6, but I just want to do two honorable mentions because I have so many so many uh right outside my top 10 i would have put mary tyler moore for the mary tyler moore show i thought she was awesome that was groundbreaking and i also wanted to give kudos to uh, uh sherman hemsley who played george jefferson on the jeffersons i thought he was a, a really unique talent he brought his a game a lot of energy and he did really good work uh on on that on that program so i just wanted to throw that out as honorable my now my 10 through 6 Here's my 10. This is an interesting one. I went with Rod Serling as Rod Serling, the narrator on the Twilight Zone, because when you watch a Twilight Zone episode and he gives the introduction and he sucks you in with his his insight onto what you're going to be seeing, how these people have entered the Twilight Zone, there was nobody like him. He did smoke on camera, which I feel when you rewatch now is certainly unique. He was what he was. I consider the man a genius in front of the camera and obviously behind the camera. But I love when Rod Serling introduced each week of the Twilight Zone. So I had to put him on my top 10 because he gave me so many great memories. I think the Twilight Zone is one of the greatest shows right there of all time in terms of thought provoking must see. Got to be there. Uh, programming. So number 10 is Rod Serling as a narrator of the Twilight Zone. Number nine, I went with Larry Hagman's J.R. Ewing on Dallas. Who would have thought the guy who was uh, Major Nelson on I Dream of Genie could be so cunning, evil, and also likable uh, and manipulative as a character? And he was as J.R. Ewing, a show which ran uh, for a long time uh from the 70s into the into the uh i think early 90s he was the heart and the soul Pat, kudos to patrick duffy who was great as bobby ewing but that show would belong to to larry hagman's J.R. ewing and i loved watching him week after week so that's my number nine my number eight i went with uh uh jack shepherd played by matthew fox on lost one of my all-time favorite programs it would be easy if i went with Locke. Uh, the character of Locke because that was a great character but to me the beginning the first episode and the last episode belonged to Jack the character of Jack and I thought Matthew Fox who, who's a very interesting person off screen uh, has, has had issues but on screen I loved him I thought it was great I thought he was the heart of the show I love Lost and that's my number eight number seven uh, I went with Jack Bauer played by Keith Sutherland on 24 a groundbreaking character because this is a character on TV that was in the vein of what Clint Eastwood did in the Dirty Harry movies. He breaks the edge. He doesn't play by the rules. He's a he's an agent for CTU, a government agent that will do anything and everything to get the bad guy, no matter what. I love this show, 24. I think it's iconic. And Keith Sutherland, who is good in movies, but on tel- television in this show, he was an absolute movie star, Ken, on 24 as Jack Bauer, and I love it. So seven is Jack Bauer. Number six, uh, I went with Tony Sobrano, played by James, the late James Ganglifini, a complex, fascinating, hypnotic, 
thought-provoking character with some of the best acting in the history of television by Gang Lafini. The Sopranos ran from 99 to 2007. Overall, six full-season episodes. But I can't imagine anybody else in that role. He was an unknown, basically, when they cast him to most. He killed it in many ways. And Tony Soprano is a character that will live the test of time. So that is my number six. So that's my 10 through six. Uh, pretty good uh, group so far. Yeah, so, so does Tony Soprano live at the end of that last episode? Uh, well, according to David Chase in a recent interview, he sort of hinted that he doesn't. Yeah. Having said that, you know, what's interesting about that last episode, and we, I've talked about this m- m- multiple times on the show, is I like it. I, I sort of like the ambiguity to it because... I guess what the fate of the character is sort of in your mind, and I think David Chase was conflicted. Uh, but if you if you read the, the 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 tea leaves in that last season about when you when you when your eye your eyes close go black, it sort of means you get whacked. So if I had to like if you put a gun to my head and I had to bet, I'd say he was whacked. Having said that, uh, I like it being open for interpretation, and in my mind, Tony Soprano is still alive and active. All right. Well, I'm going to do two honorable mentions because I came with my sure. list and I just thought of two more people I have to switch. Um, th- it was uh, early 70s. My brother and I actually chipped in and we got the first our first cable television subscription for our home. And my mother didn't really, you know, why are you doing that? It's a waste of money. Then she found out that WPIX Channel 11 did reruns of the untouchables and then all of a sudden cable was the best thing since sliced bread uh, and I, I a costner elliot ness yeah but you know elliot ness will always be robert stack the fact that his upper lip never moves uh, the, the untouchables ran from 59 to 63 just a classic uh, show really created the myth of elliot ness who had very little to do with bringing down al capone but hey it's television my my other honorable mention. I'm going. I'm going for the show Dexter. Ran from 2006 to 2013. No, I'm not doing Dexter. I'm doing uh, Jennifer Carpenter's uh, character of Deborah Morgan, Dexter's sister, who in 96 episodes uttered the f bomb, which we can't say on the air, 960 times, an average of wow. 10 times per episode. And in that final episode, when Dexter is trying to figure out her password to a computer, he types password and it doesn't work. He puts a form of the F word in before password and all of a sudden the password works. <laughs> so that's that's my that's my honorable mention. I, I mean Deborah, I like that. I like I, that a lot. I, I love Deborah Morgan in that. My my Me number too. number ten, I'm going the Game of Thrones, ran from two thousand eleven to two thousand nineteen. No, I'm not going with Daenerys. No, I'm not going with the whiny sister or the weird brother. I'm not even going with the big guy. No, uh, Maisie Williams. Her Ira Stark was the best character in that in that show. You think of the first episode, she sees her father being executed. The last episode, she's sailing off to become a pirate. Uh, I mean, for, for a teenage actress, she just played that role of learning how to become a killer and a warrior so well. She was the big killer in the end at, you know, to take down the uh, the undead Snow King or whatever the heck his name was. So that's my number 10. I just think that if you ever watched somebody grow into a role, you know, starting as a teenager, she grew into that role. 
Um, my number nine comes from Two and a Half Men. That ran from 2003 to 2015. No, it's not Charlie. It's not Alan. It's not even uh, any of the other male characters. That show was Berta. Conchetta yes, Farrell as Berto shows she that... She's great. She was great. A, a supporting actress or actor can do so much to carrying a show through. And wow, she was great in it. She... You know, they, they were straight, they were always the straight men, the Berta, which is what I love. She did a great job, you know, and even her scenes in uh, Edward Scissorhands, there was something about her where when she's on scene, she could, she dominated scenes. She's very, very talented. It's a good pick, Ken. My, my number eight, if you have to be a fan of PBS to, to know this one, uh, it ran in the UK from 1990 to 1995. It has run on PBS for the last 30 years. And so you have five seasons of shows running for 30 years and they never grow old. The show is keeping up appearances. The actress is Patricia Rutledge and the character is Hyacinth Bouquet. And if you're not familiar with Hyacinth Bouquet, take the time to watch a few episodes of Keeping Up Appearances. She is, and she's, a, she's not a small woman, but she does a lot of physical humor. This lady can do more humor with her face than anybody you've ever seen as far as expression and everything. Just an over-the-top character, and she plays it to perfection. So Patricia Rutledge's Hyacinth Bouquet is my number eight. My number seven, I have to go to Downton Abbey. I ran from 2010 to 2015. And here, I've got a pair because they really went together as a pair because when you think of who in that show really was always following tradition and lived tradition it was jim carter as carson and maggie smith as violet and uh, both of those i mean they were they were just such wonderful characters that i don't know i know nobody else could have played violet the way maggie smith did and i'm not sure anybody else could have played carson the way jim carter did but boy did they create the backbone to that show and from my number six i'm gonna go to the show Newhart, the second Bob Newhart show. Okay. The, the show that gave us Larry, Daryl, and Daryl, which was almost my pick. But then I said, who really made that show? And it was, ironically, Suzanne Plachette's husband. Uh, Suzanne Plachette, of course, was in the first Newhart and in the last scene of the second Newhart. Tom Poston is George Utley. To me, was just a wonderful character. And again, it was one of those shows where Newhart of one thing he always knew in his televo television persona was this was to surround himself yes, with characters, course. right? And that and Tom Pack and Tom Tom Poston is George Utley is my number six. That's a good pick, and that was a good show. Bob uh, Newhart obviously was an icon. Uh, good ten through six. Here now we're going to do five through one. One at a time. I'll start with number five. My number five is Carol O'Connor's Archie Bunker on one of the most iconic programs of all time. It's when television dared specifically to be daring. And that was the 1970s when All in the Family ruled the roost. The ratings were enormous. It was an amazing ensemble. But Carol O'Connor's Archie Bunker was the character that everything bounced off of. Uh, he knew that character. He understood that character. He knew how to hit buttons. He knew how to play off other actors brilliantly. Uh, it was an iconic show that still holds up perfectly to this day. So perfectly, Ken, 
that if a network wanted to re-air that show in its entirety, they wouldn't do it, or they couldn't do it. I mean, it is aired on TV Land, etc., but if CBS said, let's do rebroadcasts of that specific show in prime time, uh, they wouldn't do it because their phone would probably light up where people wouldn't like, uh, especially the woke crowd, what they are hearing. But an iconic show, an iconic character, uh, my number five, Carol O'Connor's Archie Bunker in uh, All in the Family. It's funny, when the first episode of All in the Family aired, CBS... Uh, had a disclaimer before the show they hired yeah. extra operators to man the switchboard after the show because they were ready for all the people to call in and they got a deluge of calls after the show none of them yeah. none of them complaining about the show they were yeah. they were all calling the, they wanted to know what the last line of the opening song was because you couldn't make <laughs> out the words so they That's actually funny. re-recorded the song as a result which Carol O'Connor, I think it's the closing theme, was a uh, composer of that. So he gets royalties as an actor and a composer. Uh, My number five, again, uh, you talk about this was groundbreaking. This was uh, breaking cultures. This uh, people in Indiana from WoWo will remember our former senator, uh, Dan Quayle, who became vice president, who didn't like this character. And of course, that was Candace Bergen, Murphy Brown. Because if you think of it, you had... That that girl, um, Danny Thomas's daughter. What was her first name? Marlo. Marlo Thomas uh, in in the sixties. Yeah, she had a boyfriend, but we always stayed away from anything physical. Yeah. There, Mary Tyler Moore was a single businesswoman, but they really kept her dating life uh, pretty pretty on a pretty low simmer. Candace Ber- Candace Bergen got pregnant as an unwed mother, and Dan Quayle, of course, thought that was terrible a terrible uh uh thing to be showing the american public and uh you know murphy brown a lot of great political humor in that um yeah it ran for a decade too bad when they tried to relaunch it the you could see the actors didn't have the timing anymore but uh, a great great cast and candace bergen great as murphy brown and yes it had social significance so that's my number five yeah it's a good pick that was a lightning rod show and she was really good uh, good pick. My number four, uh, I, I went with uh, Henry Winkler's Arthur Fonzarelli, Fonzie, in another 70s show, which actually ran from 74 to 85. I, he was on the entire run, uh, Henry Winkler. Uh, to me, Fonzie is a very special character in the histories, uh, annals of pop culture. His banter and friendship with Richie Cunningham, played by Ron Howard, to me is just legendary. Uh, I Just watching a clip actually off YouTube where... Fonzie is doing a dance contest with Mr. C and Mr. C doesn't know about it played by Tom Bosley he thinks they're having a, a fling and then she says uh, I, I, I love you Howard blah 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 I guess we don't have to dance and Henry Winkler's Fonzie goes into this tirade of what he's done all week how hard he's worked how he hasn't slept and he says we are going to dance the Fonz wants to dance and the live audience erupts and goes bananas it just it was nothing like that character and his connection with the American public back in the day. That sh- that show in his leather jacket, which I believe is at the Smithsonian Institute Museum, will stand the test of time. My number four, Fonzie from uh, Happy Days. I almost went with Marion Ross, uh, you know, who played uh, Mrs. C uh, when I was discussing that. One thing in discussing these things at the sure. baseball game the other night, you know, perhaps one of the weakest actors in that entire series was Ron Howard. You think so? I think so. His, char- I don't know. his character was blah. 
And, uh, yeah, but he, he was, but like I mean, he, the the idea, but he, he his aura worked. I mean, it just his banter with with an importance bouncing off Fonzie was just incredible. Yeah, he, he he was he was a great he was a great uh, supporting actor in a role where he was supposed to be the star. Exactly. Maybe. My my number okay. four. This guy is the greatest serial killer of all time. For twenty years, starting on Saturday nights, then on Monday nights. He would, every week, pull out his gun and shoot someone. It was actually the same, same character in the opening scenes. His brother, Peter Graves, was the original, well, actually the second head of the Impossible Mission Force on Mission Impossible because they had a different actor in the, in the uh, pilot than they did in the series. But it is James Arness who played Matt Dillon, who is a... You know, he and uh, and the and uh, Bonanza and Gunsmoke were had that battle for years. But Matt Dillon was just this larger-than-life character. Interesting uh, tidbit, uh, because James Arness and Peter Graves don't look all that much alike, even though they're brothers. Because Peter Graves is blonde, James Arness has dark hair. James Arness was a natural blonde. He dyed his hair uh, brown because they thought it was more manly. Uh, so an interesting tidbit for for that show. He was on, the, of course, the whole twenty year run. They did a couple of TV movies afterwards. Um, he's even referred to in the song "I Should Have Been a Cowboy," uh, and uh, you know Matt and Miss Kitty finally get together uh, about a decade later. But in any event, my number four is James Arness as Matt Dillon. Good pick. My number three, I went with the TV show uh, ER from 94 to 2009, one of my all-time favorite programs. Uh, a lot of great talent was on that show, and I could argue that uh, Dr. Green, played by Anthony Edwards, owned that show. But ultimately, my favorite character on that show and one of my favorite characters all time, who's my now my number three, would be Dr. John Carter, played by Noah Wiley. He was on the first episode, comes in, sort of the bumbling comic relief. By the time the show ends in 2009, he's a mature man uh, with sophistication. Uh, and the, the like five episodes, five seasons in, Ken, you, you, they have a storyline where you realize that this doctor, this bumbling comedic comic relief doctor who... Uh, what was I going to say? This is, okay. He they they introduce a storyline where you realize he's a filthy rich millionaire that from a family fortune. So his character, as he gets older and matures into his thirties on ER, sort of takes on a Bruce Wayne persona, which I completely dug. I like Noah Wiley a lot. I like this character a lot. I love this show, and uh, it's a big fan. I'm a big fan of this uh, character, John Carter, played by Noah Wiley. He's number three on uh, ER for me. When you talk about great television fathers, and you know Father's Day will be in a few more weeks, and you know my number three is the greatest television father of all time. Yeah, Robert Young. Okay, he was all right. Uh, you know, and uh, yeah, the Robert Reed, Mr. Brady, and I didn't grow up with a father, and it's like, oh, is that what fathers are like? No, there aren't any fathers like those guys. No, the most realistic, even Archie Bunker was a, you know, played a pretty good father there. But the most realistic to me, father on television. Ever was from 1987 to 1997. It was Mr. Ed O'Neill playing Al Bundy. Uh, and of course, we know he was a great football talent. He was a great father. There's a couple, there are a couple of clips because, you know, his, his daughter was a little bit loose at times. 
but he was still protective of her. A couple of clips where she's making out in the house with boys, and Al just grabs the boys, bounces their heads off the door and off of the door jam, and throws them out of the house. And that's you know that that is the typical Al. He said things that everybody else is, was always thinking but didn't want to say. Had a great uh, supporting cast around him, but Al Bundy, Ed O'Neill is my number three. Listen, uh, as sitcoms go, that one's one of the best, in my opinion. Uh, it's not exactly, it's, it's, he's basically playing a slob. He does an amazing job at that role. The supporting cast is also great. Uh, and, and, and it is no doubt he is a terrific actor. Good pick. My number two, I went with Michael C. Hall's Dexter on Dexter, a show that ran from 2006 to 2013 and was revived a couple years ago was Dexter New Blood. I love Dexter. I think Michael C. Hall was born to play this role. I'm assuming someday you'll see this movie, revi- this character revived on the big screen with another actor. Uh, there is no other actor to play Dexter. Michael C. Hall is Dexter, uh, relatively unknown when he took the role. Uh, I just find the show fascinating. It's not perfect season to season, but overall excellent. I love New Blood. I hated the last half hour, what they did with the Dexter character. Probably won't forgive the showrunners for doing that, but uh, what a great show! What a great character! Thought-provoking, fascinating, and he's sort of like, sort of like a Bruce Wayne Batman uh, to an extreme. Uh, great character, Dexter Morgan, number two. My number two. There was a show that ran from 1985 to 1992. Had a had a spinoff after it that was, eh. but and it, it starred Rue McClanahan, Betty White, and uh, you know it was we we had these four old people in miami and uh you know it's like oh nobody's gonna you know this this show it's only geared to old people nobody of a younger generation is gonna follow it well i watched every episode and i was 35 when it ended my daughter was born 13 years after it ended and she's a huge fan i know other people whose children are even younger who you huge fans of the golden girls and then you ask yourself well, who was the ultimate star of that show? Mm. And, and it wasn't Dorothy, it wasn't Rose, it wasn't Blanche. It was the youngest actress of the four playing the oldest character. Estelle, Estelle Getty as Sophia is the... Yeah, I agree. She was that show and she could say things. She, because she had had a stroke, she used it as an excuse to say whatever she wanted. Her timing was perfect, her delivery was perfect. So I'm going with Sophia from uh, the Golden Girls as my number two. Uh, good pick. My number one for me was easy. Uh, it's Andrew Lincoln's Rick Grimes and The Walking Dead, a show that's run from 2002, uh, 2010 to 2022. He left, uh, I think, in season seven. He came back. He came back in the the, la- the last uh, season to do his spinoff show, which will air next year. To me, Andrew Lincoln's Rick Grimes is an iconic character his acting with his basically without acting the way he looked his facial expressions his emotional renaissance the way he could show emotion uh just through sadness or or grief i think it's incredible he was the heart the backbone of the show a lot of the other characters were terrific also including uh daryl dixon played by norman reedus uh negan played by jeffrey morgan so many good characters michonne but to me, Andrew Lincoln as Rick Grimes is the heart and soul and one of the greatest characters in the history of television, at least for me. So that is my number one, Ken. And my number one, luckily I grew up 
and I was really, I, I mean, I, I always looked up to this character, respected this character, was always the, the person on television that I always wanted to see. Luckily, it wasn't Red Fox and Sanford and Son, or else I might have grown up to be a secondhand junk dealer. But no, uh, Perry Mason, Raymond Burr, I actually oh, okay. decided I was going to be a lawyer watching all of those Perry Mason shows. Uh, he played he played a great lawyer. I mean, none of, none of the since him every lawyer show the guy's gonna have a quirk or something. He's gonna have some shtick. He's either you know this old country bumpkin or he is you know somebody like we we have with Better Call Saul. No, Raymond Burr was just just a lawyer. Well, okay, he also acted as a private detective, detective along with Paul Drake and. Uh, um, you know, he, he didn't quite, you know, lawyers don't normally solve the cases in court, but just a wonderful, serious actor, played a great lawyer. It's a classic television show. It had been revived a few times, but nobody else is ever going to be Perry Mason. So my number one, Raymond Burr, Perry Mason, the and the show, of course, was Perry Mason. Good pick, Ken. Uh, a lot of fun, a lot of memories to go through to the audience thanks for listening uh ken you have a great weekend everybody happy memorial day weekend and uh we'll see you next week thanks for listening to movie maniacs download one of our archived episodes be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts Podcasts by Federated Media.